This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're getting deep into your psyche and your food habits here for our hot question of the day today. On Science with Simi, coming up on the show, we're going to be having a chat with renowned food scientist Paul Dawson about urban myths. And we're going to get the truth around your food questions. Things like double dipping, like really, how bad is it? Wait till you hear what he has to say about beer pong. Oh my goodness, that shocked me. And of course, ultimately, the five second rule. Is that really a problem? So before we get to the answers about an hour from now on the show, we wanted to get that uh, answer from you. He's going to tell us definitively, but we want to know your opinion on this. Do you believe in the five second rule? Do you go, yeah, the food's still good, no big deal. Uh, people overreact, or do you go, no, throw it out, not going to touch it. We uh, did quite the poll around work this morning, and boy, some people don't care. Eric Chapman literally won't even touch it if it's on the way down. Like, <laughs> not even close to the ground, not going to touch it once it falls out of his hand. Like, he is done at that point. So, go to Sarah 980 to cast your vote on this. You can also go to at CKNW. Let me know your thoughts. As I said, we're going to have the definitive answer for you coming up. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Uh, for our Science with Simi today, we are, th- what prompted this, you may have seen this viral story earlier Earlier this week about the In-N-Out burger, which was found on the street in New York City. And it caused this viral sensation because if you know your burgers, you know In-N-Out is a West Coast thing, only on the West Coast. How did an In-N-Out burger in the wrapper and everything end up on a street in New York City? We're going to explain that as well. It prompted this discussion about the five-second rule and much more coming up on the show this morning. Right now, though, let's get an update on the top story of the day, top story of the week, and that is right across the country. The situation involving the manhunt in the northern part of Manitoba. Global News reporter Clay Young joins us from Winnipeg now with more on this. And Clay, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for uh, having me back. All right, so what what are we hearing? That RCMP are going to be speaking, right, in about an hour or so? Yeah, we were wondering if, uh, if the police were going to hold daily briefings on this. They held one yesterday uh, to confirm that a vehicle that they found burnt out near the town of Gillum, which is way up in, in northern Manitoba, uh, had indeed uh, been in the operation of the two suspects. Uh, now... Uh, the RCMP are holding another one at 3 o'clock this afternoon, and we hope to get a little more information than what they gave us yesterday. Yeah. We were a little surprised. The, the, the officer, uh, the media relations officer, Julie Corshane, she read a statement, and then uh, when the reporter started you know, asking questions, she pretty much said, no, that's, that's about it, and she walked off. So hopefully we'll get some more details. Uh, because there's been other sightings now. Uh, you know, none of them have been confirmed, you know, outside of Gillum. We even, a uh, lady even called a little while ago saying that they believe they spotted the two of them in Kenora, which is in northwestern really? Ontario. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, like I said last night, there was uh, rumors flying around that they had been seen in Brandon. So, I mean... Everybody's got to just calm down here, but uh, we hope to nail something down a little better with the RCMP later today. But question is, where are they? 
Right. Now, that is thick bush. That's muskeg uh, territory. There's insects galore in that bush. And, uh, you know, if they don't have the sufficient water or food, I, I, I just can't see them lasting much longer than this. Now, you talked about uh, the RCMP and kind of the lack of information. Do you think that's contributing to the heightened concern then that people have? They're starting to see them in other places where when you don't have a lot of information, that's kind of what happens. That could very well be. Um, you know, I was surprised that she was so tight-lipped, and I'm just wondering that, you know, they won't. They don't want to tip their hand. They'll give you the, the brief five W's, and maybe that's about it. And uh, maybe they just are worried that somehow if they if they give out too much information, it'll get to the suspects. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. But hopefully we'll be able to get a lot more in uh, less than two hours from now. Right. Okay. And you said they're, they're being spotted everywhere. Do, do you find that the situation's a bit tense for residents, Clay? Uh, well, I know that, uh, you know, I, I, I saw the global television footage, uh, and they did interview some Gillum residents, and they seem very on edge. Uh, the mayor is saying, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, uh, stay indoors, even during the day, uh, daytime period. Uh, don't go out. Uh, I noticed, uh, and I believe it was mentioned, that even the mayor of Churchill, which is another two hours north, has uh, said that they're keeping an eye on the situation because these fellows have made it from northern B.C. to northern Alberta to northern Saskatchewan and now to northern Manitoba. Um, but And here's another question. Do, yeah. in fact, they, they know um, tactics if you were a survivalist, if you could survive out in those kind of conditions yeah so you're right so many more questions about this all right clay thank you so much you bet thank you that is clay young global news reporter in winnipeg with the latest on this and but we also want to discuss some other stories like this one because it's been ongoing it's been developing but very very slowly and that is bringing ride hailing to bc we know that applications from companies such as uber are being accepted starting September the 3rd. That's not that far away. Whether or not there will be another enough drivers, though, well, that is another matter. Now, Uber has said earlier today that depending on the number of available and capable drivers, specifically those who have that Class 4 license as opposed to the standard Class 5, well, if we don't have enough of those, they said they may not be able to operate outside of Metro Vancouver. So, Let's find out more about this. Joining us is Uber Canada's General Manager of Cities, Michael Van Hemmen. Michael, thank you very much for being here. Nice to be with you today. So have you had a response from people who do want to sign up to drive for Uber? Yeah, so after the, over the last four years, we've had uh, a number of people uh, provide us with their phone, their phone number or their email address to say that they're interested in becoming a driver. And so what we did yesterday is we took that list and we emailed tens of thousands of people across Metro Vancouver to say the province has said that a class four license is necessary uh, in order to ride share at this time. And so we've encouraged them because that process can take a a bunch of time that if they want Uber to come to uh, Metro Vancouver, um, which we're hoping they do, that they start that process to get that class four license as soon as possible so that uh, should the passenger transportation board uh, finalize rules that uh, can allow us to operate, that hopefully we would be able to be on the road with with lots of drivers. Is there any way to determine if some of the applicants already have a Class 4? Yep. So once drivers uh, provide us with their email address, we ask them for an image of their driver's license. 
Um, they upload, some of them have a class four or one or two, which would allow them to drive right away. But the vast, vast majority, similar to the vast majority of British Columbians, have a class five license. Um, they have a safe driving history with that class five license. The province has asked that they add on some extra red tape, and uh, so we were, we're telling people that uh, they, they need to start that process now uh, in, in Metro Vancouver. So what does that tell you then, Michael, about what the potential rollout for Uber could be like here in BC? So we know that uh, in Metro Vancouver, um, we're going to require uh, lots of drivers, Um we're going to require thousands of drivers. The vast majority of people who drive with Uber do so occasionally on their own time. You set your own hours uh, and make money when you need the money. So most people do it, say, as part of their commute or in the evening after they've, they've, they've done uh, kind of their normal job because they've got, got some free time and want to make some additional money. And so if, if, that's, if that's someone like you or your listeners, uh, they need to start the process to get a Class 4 license now because, because people choose when they want to drive. You need to have lots of different drivers to be able to fill all the times to provide a reliable, affordable service for riders in, in Vancouver. Right. So what I'm, I guess what I'm wondering then is, so do you think it'll be a slow rollout? Because how does Uber operate in other cities? Like when you've started operating in another city, do you immediately have lots of drivers? So generally it takes a little bit of time for us to notify drivers, um, but we're more concerned about uh, about the that timing here in BC, which is why we're telling drivers, if you're interested, to start sooner rather than, rather than later. Don't wait for the passenger transportation application period. Uh, start that process at ICBC now. Okay, so what about other parts of BC then? Like, I'm sure in Metro Vancouver, you'll be able to get some people, but what does that tell you about Uber's operation elsewhere? Yeah, so we're very concerned about uh, the ability for ride-sharing operations uh, like Uber's to be able to operate um, outside of the most densely populated areas of, you know, Vancouver and, and the suburbs. So we're engaged with the province but about the rest of the province and saying, if we're wanting to bring ride sharing across BC to, to, to be in places like Victoria, Kelowna, you know, Prince George, Comox, all those types of communities uh, of a size that we would operate in, in, say, in Ontario, we need to find a solution that ensures only safe drivers are able to get on the road, but it doesn't uh, put up a, you know, a couple months process and a lot of red tape to drive the exact same vehicle that you're already driving on the road today. Right. But if that's the rules then, and let's say in a small community like, you know, a smaller community like Kamloops, you've got a couple of drivers who have those regulations and want to do it. Will they be allowed to do it or is Uber going to say, no, that's not enough people? So we, so we want to we want to be present across BC. I'm a small town boy from the north end of Vancouver Island. I understand that transportation challenges are actually more acute in, yeah. in the rest of BC. Um, but, but at the same time, we need to be able to provide a reliable service because if you go out in that community in a small town and you go have some beers with some, with some friends and you open the Uber app because you need to get home safely and there isn't a ride available, um, that's not a great s- scenario because you one from a business perspective you won't look at us again but more importantly you've just made a decision to to you know to drink and now you don't have a way to get home so we need to be able uber doesn't have a minimum though you don't have like a minimum number of drivers that need to be available at any given time in an area so what we have is we we have a system by which we have enough drivers available that we can be confident that you'll be able to get that you'll be able to get a, a ride reliably and so we need to, the two things that we need to be able to launch in a, in a in a community are rules that allow us to operate our business model 
and enough drivers. And so if we aren't able to, to uh, uh, get enough drivers who are qualified, uh, then that prevents us from operating in an area. But Michael, with all due respect here, like I've used Uber extensively outside of British Columbia. I, I've used Uber uh, in Kona, Hawaii, or at least I've tried to, but I couldn't because no drivers were available because nobody was on the road. So Uber doesn't have like a minimum. You're not guaranteeing a ride all the time anyway. Uh, that's correct. And so we try to avoid those experiences and to have service areas that allow people to uh, ensure that they're going to get a reliable ride. But if a small town in BC does have like one or two people who want to do this, will Uber say, no, we're, that's not enough, we're not going to operate there? Or will they say, sure, go ahead, we'll take whoever is available? Yeah, so so there's a couple of parts to that. So one, it'll depend upon the pro- the uh, passenger transportation board and their uh, service area restrictions that they put on uh, to transportation network service, com- sorry, companies like Uber. Right. Um, and then the second will be uh, to ensure that we have enough to have enough rides. Because what will happen is that if someone opens the app a number of times and there's no, no trip available because that one or two drivers weren't online, they won't look again in that community. And then that, that driver who might go on at different hours will be frustrated to find that there aren't any riders looking for them at that time. So in order to keep the cycle going of riders looking on the app and drivers making money by 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 uh, driving, we need to ensure that, that people, when they open the app, that there are drivers uh, readily available uh, ready available to provide that service. What are the next steps then here for Uber? Yeah, so the next steps for us are really threefold. So the first is to encourage drivers to start the class four process um, because the province has laid that out as a requirement to continue to engage the province um, on on models that other provinces across uh, Canada have done so, uh, have done to ensure safe drivers without without as much uh, red tape while ensuring safety. And then three, um, engage with the Passenger Transportation Board on its process to finalize rules for ride sharing, which should be done, I'm being told, in in mid-August, which would set the stage for applications in September. Okay, I have a feeling we're going to be talking to you more then. Thanks, Michael. I I hope we do, and I hope it's good news. Yeah, me too. Thank you for that. No worries. Have a great day. You too. That's Michael Van Hemmen. He's the head of Western Canada for Uber. We've all done this, right? We've looked at some food and we've wondered, is that safe to eat? Did you drop something on the floor and think, ah, five second roll, that is all good. Or as we asked when our Eric Chapman brought this up too, he says once it touches the floor, no good, nothing. Even on the way down, he is not interested in eating that. He said that is just gross. This was just all was prompted uh, this week in our workplace by a story that we saw from New York City. It has captivated people in New York because they were wondering, how did this happen? So you might have seen the picture on social media. An In-N-Out burger lying on the street in New York with the wrapper and everything literally looked like it had just been picked up from the counter of the cashier at In-N-Out. There it is on the street in New York City. So why do you think is that so spectacular? Why is that so unique? Well, if you know your burgers, you know In-N-Out burgers are only available on the West Coast. So for it to be on the East Coast, it would have meant that somebody bought it at an In-N-Out somewhere on the West Coast, got on an airplane, flew to New York City, and then somehow, what, dropped a burger on the street? Well, it turns out actually that is what happened. It was a woman who loved In-N-Out burgers, bought a whole bunch of them, was bringing them home to New York City and did drop one of them as she was crossing the street. But by the time it was found, when you think about that, right, that must have been what, nine, 10 hours after it had actually been made on the West Coast, 
hadn't been refrigerated, so not really safe to eat. And yet, people were clearly thinking about it because they said oh, it looked fine. It looked perfectly fine. It was in the wrapper. The wrapper, you know, didn't really touch the ground. But it got us thinking about that five-second rule too. Like, if the food touches the ground, should you not eat it? Is it still safe to eat? We wanted to get the definitive answer on this. So earlier this morning, I had a chance to speak with food sciences professor Paul Dawson. He's from Clemson University in South Carolina. He's actually done extensive research into the five-second rule, into double dipping, into beer pong and bacteria. And here's what he told us. Well, Professor Dawson, thanks so much for joining us. You specialize in kind of food science and product quality. How did you get involved in this? Well, I guess... uh I got interested in it when I went to college, undergrad, got first was interested in nutrition. And then as I studied more, got interested in kind of a branch of that or a different practice, food science. And that's food science is kind of a general term, but it's, I got interested more in the food microbiology aspect of that and shelf life of food. That's been a hot topic this week from what we've seen in the news. Is, is food shelf life like getting longer and longer? Uh, well, I think it is uh, in the past couple of decades because of how food is handled, especially in the developing countries in the U.S. There's a shorter time from the, if it's the field or the farm to the table. And anytime you can, can shorten that time, you're going to extend the shelf life to the consumer and also how it's handled uh, in that process. So uh, I think in general, and I know that uh, people who travel around, I was traveling just last month and the shelf life in some other countries isn't quite what it is in the U.S. And so I think it is getting longer. I guess it's generally due to that, how it's handled from the farm to the table. Okay. I, ha- I have to ask you here then, Professor Dawson, do you believe in the five-second rule? <laughs> uh, no, it's a myth. What? <laughs> no, bacteria's, bacteria, bacteria will be transferred immediately upon contact. Uh and we studied that, yeah, the five-second bull by dropping food on uh, surfaces we had inoculated with bacteria or salmonella in particular and at different time intervals and found it was transferred immediately. So if it's, if it's bacteria there, it's going to be transferred. But is it bad bacteria? Like, is it still safe to eat if it fell on the floor and you pick it up, like, you know, one second later? Yeah, the time doesn't make a difference. It does, what you just said is, is true. Is It depends on the surface on the floor. In most places, most services aren't going to have probably bacteria or not going to have pathogens on it. Uh, so, you know, as far as safety, it's probably in the most cases is safe. But again, you never know if you're in a area where raw food's been handled or you know, extreme case would be like a hospital. Uh, you drop food on the floor. Most likely there's going to be some bacteria or viruses there that can make you sick. And you'll, you'll kind of get, you'll get those when you eat that food. But in most cases, yeah, it's just uh, most bacteria, I'm at 99% of bacteria's got numbers thrown out there is either harmless. A lot of bacteria is actually positive for us. In fact, in fact, we have uh, at three times as many bacterial cells in our bodies as do human cells. So bacteria are very important to our health. Okay, so that's a really good point then. And what you're saying is it depends on the floor. Exactly. It depends on the surface. Uh, I use an example of being in a, in a kitchen where someone's caught cut raw meat uh, and you go behind them and make a sandwich on that surface then that would be a risk factor because it's probably going to there might be some pathogens there so yeah cross-contamination would be the concern but 
again, most cases, uh, floor is not going to be or not going to be contaminated. Now you never know. Someone walks in, just walked outside, and you know they stepped in dog, do do or whatever, then it might be there. So I always equate it kind of playing Russian roulette uh, or not not wearing a seatbelt. Uh, you go your whole life uh, not have an accident, not wearing a seatbelt, never get hurt, but for chance you do have an accident, it's probably going to save your life. Right. That makes sense. Did you see this story in the news this week, Professor Dawson, about the In-N-Out burger that showed up in New York City and nobody knew how it had gotten there? I did read that story. Uh, that was uh, kind of uh, hard to understand or, or uh, interesting, right. <laughs> to say the least. Cause clearly, this burger, if somebody had wanted to eat it at that point, would have been like nine hours old about that. We we calculated with the flight and everything. Uh, and it you know, would have not been refrigerated. Would that thing still be safety? This lady had brought it all the way across the country from Los Angeles on an airplane without refrigerating it. Is it still okay to eat at that point? Yeah, that that would be an example of playing Russian roulette, I think. Uh, you know, when obviously when the meat's cooked, it's safe to eat. But uh, we don't, you know, when you cook meat, you don't cook it to the point you're going to make it sterile. Uh, you know, our astronauts, the food for astronauts has to be sterile, so they're processed to a point that makes them, you know, free of bacteria. But when we cook food, we're destroying the pathogens that are there. But uh, there could be cross-contamination. I mentioned if, if there's bacteria present nine hours, certainly unrefrigerated, uh, you know, would not be safe to eat. I mean, I, that would be my judgment. Now, you could eat it and be fine, you know, half the time, but uh, you just never know. Right. Plus, it had been sitting in the street. You don't really want to eat it at that point. No, no. Yes. <laughs> if you cook it, uh, put it in a container that's uh, sealed. But uh, obviously, a paper wrapper, as the picture I saw, is not going to be uh, protecting it completely. <laughs> so don't eat that burger. I guess that's good advice. Now, I know another hot topic that you have worked on in your career is the idea of double dipping. Is double dipping really so awful? Well, that again, it's uh, the fact that we found, the fact is that when you double dip, you are transferring bacteria from your mouth uh, to the dip. So kind of like the five-second rule, you're kind of rolling the dice, if you will, uh, depending on who else is double dipping. Uh, we, we actually, someone came up with a saying, we, we said that you, know, you go to a party and everybody's double dipping, it's like you're kissing everybody in the room. So <laughs> That could be okay. <laughs> uh, so, oh, boy. I mean, that might be okay at a family okay. party, not so much at a work party. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah. And, and, and you know, you never know someone has cold. And some people who are not overtly ill are carrying a cold you know, or an illness. And a classic example of that is uh, Typhoid Mary, who it was not overtly sick, but was you know, carrying salmonella and making people sick. So, uh yeah, it's just taking a chance and, and you know, a long party, multiple uh, people dipping in the same bowl. Uh, you just kind of taking your chances. Right. I guess that's the thing, because like, as you say, some people might do this their whole lives and think, ah, oh, you're overreacting. There's no big deal. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm, actually, when you, I'm not, I've probably been guilty of it because you're there talking and you dip your chip in there or cracker and you bite it and you're standard and you have a chip in your hand half bitten. Uh, your reflexes to dip it again. You know, of course, now I don't more conscious of that, but uh, I'm sure many people have, have have done that. Is it true you also studied uh, the transfer of bacteria while playing beer pong? 
We did do that. Yeah, our our studies uh, oftentimes are were dealing with undergraduate students, kind of having them learn how to do research. So we had them come up with ideas themselves, and that was one of the ideas the students came up with because uh, it's a popular game at uh, down in the U.S. Uh, college football games, uh, uh, tailgating as they call it down here. Uh, beer pong is a fairly popular game, so uh, that we actually went out on the homecoming weekend and traded. Uh, fresh ping-pong balls for ones that have been used in, ping- in beer pong games and took them back to the lab and uh, counted the bacteria and kind of identified them that had been were on there. We actually found uh, really high levels of bacteria on the uh, ping-pong balls. And even based on the surface they're being played on, outdoors had a lot higher than ones being played indoors. But there was still a lot of transfer. We actually found 3 million bacteria on one ping-pong ball that had been used in the game. And, that, and actually, it's probably the more dangerous than the ball bouncing around the floor is the people handling the ball. You think people, that's how cross-contamination, someone's sick and they, yeah. their hand's dirty and they pick the ball up and, they're, and, that may, and the more they drink, the uh, less conscious they are of hygiene. <laughs> you know, they go to the bathroom <laughs> and come back and keep playing. Oh, so. oh uh, Professor we Dawson. Actually, then, we did a, then we did a lab. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, we did. A, we took went back to the lab as well and verified. We inoculated the ping pong balls and threw them in beer, and and nearly all the bacteria was transferred from the ball to the beer. So oh. we kind of closed the loop on that. It, <laughs> you must be so much fun at a dinner party and a cocktail party, <laughs> Professor Dawson. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you very much. That is Paul Dawson. He is a food sciences professor from Clemson University in South Carolina. Isn't that gross? Now, it's been just over a year since Cloverdale hockey dad Paul Bennett was gunned down in broad daylight in his driveway. Just shocking the local community there and obviously driving them to want to know how this could happen in their neighborhood. Now, the integrated homicide investigation team said early on that they believed that this was a case of mistaken identity. Okay, fine, but... That's really about it. That's all we know at this point. No arrests have actually been made. Shortly after his tragic death, Paul Bennett's widow, Darlene, spoke to Global News about this devastating impact of losing her husband and how she hopes, against all hopes, that the person responsible is going to be brought to justice. No one should have to see their husband sitting in a truck with bullet wounds and half. Yeah, it, it just, you know, my kids shouldn't have seen that. I want justice for Paul, so I want them to have a strong case. I want them to be able to take this to court. And um, I want someone to be held responsible. So it's just going to take time. And although that's extremely difficult to wait, I have faith and I have hope. Well, still waiting and still hoping for that. Now, in an exclusive interview, CKNW reporter Janet Brown had a chance to speak with the new hit ahead of IHIT, that is the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. He's Superintendent Dave Chauhan. Talked about the case and whether or not police are closer to finding out who is responsible. Dave, something I really want to ask you about, and I know the public is still talking about it a year past the date of when it happened, uh, the tragic, shocking murder of hockey dad, father Paul Bennett in his driveway in Cloverdale on a sunny Saturday afternoon. It's still unsolved. Uh, what, do, what do you have to say to the public out there? Is it still frustrating for you personally not to have this murder solved? Well, Janet, I would say that, uh, you know, we are eager and we are quite motivated to solve uh, Paul's murder. 
we have uh, a dedicated team of investigators uh, who are assigned to this case, and this is a priority case for us. So, so this team is uh, committed to solving this case. Uh, now, you know, at IHIT, uh, with the level of uh, experience and with the level of expertise that we have, um, we don't let these type of uh, incidents uh, l- let us get down or, or get frustrated. Uh, because we trust in ourselves, we trust in the methods that we employ in solving these homicide cases, and we know that by continuing to uh, follow the evidence trail, you know, we will eventually, uh, you know, reap the benefits of our, our labor or sooner or later. So you're confident we will see an, an arrest at some point in time? Uh, like I said, you know, we are diligently working towards this investigation. And uh, again, uh, you know, it's uh, the accumulation of all the evidence and then presentation to the Crown Council at the end of the day. Uh, But all I can say is that our teams are working uh, on this investigation on a daily basis. I am part of uh, weekly meetings with the teams, so I have a full awareness of exactly what files we are working on. And I can assure you uh, that this is one of the files that I hear about uh, on a weekly basis. Is it personally frustrating for you not to have this murder solved by now? You know, it Homicides are very complex investigations. Um, there are certain cases that can be solved within a 24-hour period, and some can take uh, years. And, you know, a couple of the examples I'll give you is uh, the Desi file just recently. I mean, it's a young innocent girl who was killed in August of 2017. took us a couple of years. Uh, Josh Borden case uh, with the homicide of Kim- Kimberly Holgarth from Burnaby, which happened in 2009. It took us about eight, nine years to solve it. So sometimes, uh, you know, we do our best to follow all the leads, to follow all the evidence trail, and uh, sometimes it may be, uh, you know, some member of the community who would hold some information and they have some reluctance to come forward. Uh, so that's why we always encourage the public to participate and, and assist uh, their police forces in solving this, these, cr- these type of crimes. Do you think that's, can you speak to that when you say some members of the public often withhold information for whatever reason? Do you think that could be the case in the Paul Bennett murder? Because it was, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, people were outside in their yards, people saw a lot, and there was also that video of that silver Honda on the street as well. Do you think this could be a case of maybe people not providing information that they have? I can say that in most of the cases that we have worked, and that's uh, something quite common that we experience because there's someone somewhere they know something uh you know i mean when it comes to members of the public uh, sometimes there's the awareness is not there so that's why i make sure that i communicate that message to the communities and some people are reluctant to just come forward um for the fear that uh, they may get uh, identified in the public. So that's why we have different programs. Crime Stopper programs is, you know, a wonderful program where people can contact us and at the same time remain anonymous. But sometimes it's also the criminal element too. Um, they know what's happened and there's a reluctance on their part. But then with time and distance, things change as well. Uh, so that's why it's, it's important for us as police to make sure that continuous appeal goes out to the public and it reaches those ears and uh, and that in turn they know that they have to do the right thing to do their civic duty and assist the police because by assisting us we end up getting that uh, justice to the families that they so rightly deserve. How many investigators do you have on this file? <clears throat> we have one full team working on it but when it comes to having additional resources 
we never have any shortage of uh, resources and I'll just give you an example of the Shen investigation, the young girl from Burnaby who was killed. Um, at the height of that investigation, we had 300 resources working on that on that investigation. So that's the beauty of the integrated fashion we have, the integrated model we have with 28 RCMP detachments and four municipal police forces who are part of the IHEC model. So when we are working on an investigations and we require additional resources and those number of resources can double, quadruple, whatever we need. So all that resources there, but it's all dependent on what's happening on the investigation. When you talk about the integrated model, will things change perhaps if the city of Surrey moves to a municipal police force versus the RCMP? Well, I can tell you that nothing is going to change for IHIT, the way we conduct our business. Um, regardless of uh, you know what happens uh, in, in the political arena, as far as Surrey Police Force is concerned, IHIT's mandate is to um, solve murders, and we'll continue to do that. Um, I have read in the uh, Surrey Policing Transition Plan report, which was uh, released to the public on June 3rd of this year, uh, there are three different options uh, are mentioned in that report. And the first option uh, is to remain part of the IHIT team. So if, you know, the plan goes through the government, uh, so that's what Surrey is proposing, to remain part of the IHIT. So it will not change anything for us. But should they decide to leave, uh, we will just, there will be one less municipality that will be part of uh, IHIT. But like I said, we will continue to, uh, to do our job, which is to uh, solve homicide cases. Something else I want to discuss with you, CCTV cameras. Uh, a number of city councillors have brought it up in the past that they would like to see those on our streets, that perhaps it could help the police solve murders a little more quickly with that video that's available. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would be a good way to go? Well, in my opinion, I think the CCT evidence is the best digital eyewitness evidence we have out there. And uh, I'm always supportive of new and innovative ways of uh, collecting best evidence. Um, as we know uh, from our experience that uh, the video surveillance, CCT evidence is becoming more and more prominent, uh, becoming a very crucial component of uh, homicide investigations every day. Not just homicide investigations, but all sorts of investigations. I'll just give you two quick examples. The Maple Battaglia incident that happened on September 28th of 2011, young girl who was killed uh, in Surrey. Um, if we did not have uh, the accumulation of CCT evidence that we collected from the scene and, and many other places, that would have been a very difficult investigation for us to solve. And um, a second example I'll give you is uh, an incident from August 12, 2015, when I was at Surrey Detachment. Uh, an elderly, uh, vulnerable citizen of our community in South Surrey was violently attacked by, by an individual. And it was the CCT cameras uh, which, uh, you know, showed us the suspect vehicle, which eventually, eventually led to uh, the identification, arrest, charges, and subsequent conviction of, of this individual. So, um, now... Uh, but the decisions to install CCT cameras in public places, I mean, that decision rests with our elected officials and, and civic leaders, but uh, it is something that uh, I definitely support, uh, given the, the reasons I have just stated. Would you like to see more then, obviously, at major intersections, more than we have uh, around the community then, on, on, on roadways, etc.? I think, um, uh, like I said, we investigate very complex investigations and if there's any um, 
things we have, any techniques, um, uh, any type of assistance that we can get. And, you know, if it's through CCTV, and if it assists us in solving those cases, and, you know, I, I think of it as, as a twofold thing. If it, those things assist us, we identify the perpetrators who have committed violent crimes against others and hold them accountable for their actions. And secondly, and, and equally importantly, is to provide that justice and to bring some closure to those families. So I welcome uh, the more assistance that we can get and if we can speed up the processes in identifying the violent individuals and as a result, preventing, arresting them in a timely fashion and preventing them from committing further crimes, I think that's uh, it's a welcome opportunity for me. That is our senior reporter, Janet Brown, speaking with Dave Chauhan, who is the new uh, the superintendent head of the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, about his priorities in taking over that job. Let's talk about one of the other stories that have been making a lot of headlines this week. Earlier this week, we heard about the decision by the Vancouver Pride Society to tell the Vancouver Public Library that it cannot, as an organization, participate in this year's Pride Parade. Now, we heard from the executive director of the society about why that is. They feel that a speaker named Megan Murphy, who was allowed to use a VPL space earlier this year, was a, uh, a threat to the values of what Pride stands for. So we wanted to explore more of that because, you know, on the other side of the issue, and I've been seeing this debate online a lot the last few days, there's people who are saying it's freedom of expression, that I always oh, stand with libraries, this is, uh, you know, Pride is making too big of a deal about all that kind of stuff. So we wanted to ask the question, like, what is the impact of these public speakers who agitate against the values that Pride aims for? How does it make a trans person feel when speakers like this come to town and are given a space in places like the Vancouver Public Library. So that was the discussion that we wanted to have. We had a chance to speak with Catherine Jenkins, a trans woman and a board member of the Vancouver Pride Society, about this. And here's our conversation. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. There's been a lot of debate in the last week about the Vancouver Pride Society's decision, do you feel the Pride Society got their message out there? Uh, I think so. I mean, we really, uh, the, the goal from all of the uh, engagements that we did with community members and discussing this uh, with grassroots activists, we really tried to listen more than anything. And then from that, uh, that informed our decision-making process and uh, really tried to just uh, get the information out there through. We have a FAQ on our website if people have more questions. Yeah, I read that. That was really good. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think we've tried to do a really good job of trying to reach the folks that we want to reach in our communities. Now, I felt like what was missing the last couple of days in this discussion was the more personal side of this. Is that it turned into this? Can you book? Can you go listen to somebody? Is that just freedom of expression, and is that being stifled here? But let's talk about the impact of when the, the, in this particular question, it was booking a speaker like Megan Murphy, who was booked to speak at the Vancouver Public Library. What is the impact of having someone like that booked in a public venue? How does that make you feel? Well, I think it it affects me on a, a few different levels. Um, so uh, as a trans woman, it affects me because I 
I, I personally, I don't identify as tra- like I am. I am transgender, but it's not. That's not my identity. My identity is I'm a woman, and the uh, a lot of the root of these uh, talks is the idea that you know other people don't think I am. Uh, they they feel that trans people aren't who they say they are. They feel that our identities are up for debate. And when someone tries to put my identity and who I am at my, in my core up for debate, it's incredibly hurtful uh, and really does, you know, hurt me. Does um, it scare you? Yeah, it really does. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, trans people face ridiculous rates of violence uh, and have high rates of unemployment, have housing issues all the time. Uh, I have friends, I had a friend I talked to yesterday who just said that as soon as her employer found out she was trans, that um, that job was over for her. Um, Mm -hmm. And while we can hopefully count on some of these systems to protect us, uh, we really do need protections under the Human Rights Code, which luckily we now have. But if they're not enforced, um, then it it doesn't help us at all. And so, um, like I always like to say, your ability to swing your arms ends up my nose. And so for me personally, it's it's hard when I feel that people are purposefully trying to hurt my community and me directly. Is that the part of this, do you think, that's kind of missing? Is it when people say, oh, no, it's freedom of expression? And you think, well, no, no, it's it's much more than that. Yeah, because I think I think people fail to realize why these protections exist in the first place. Um, they're you know the world is not a great place. We we live in a society that is often racist, misogynist, homophobic, and transphobic. And in that society, we we've decided together collectively as a country that we're not going to put up with that kind of behavior. And so we've codified that with legislation, which. I feel, and I believe the vast majority of Canadians feel, is the right thing to do. Um, but as I said, if we don't actually use that and use those protections to actually support people and uplift them, then it we end up with these troubling statistics uh, where you know a lot of homeless youth, you know, are trans youth that have been trans and gay youth that have been kicked out of their homes, and. Uh, it's just really sad when we pick apart those layers and realize that it's people at the end of the day that are affected. So in this particular case with the Vancouver Public Library, it was a pretty big deal back in January of this year. Do you feel like, was it worse because it got made public? Like, I think it's, there's a balance sometimes, right? Like, do you ignore this and maybe nobody will show up at the talk and it'll go away, but then it gets made into a big deal and now all of a sudden everybody knows about it? Um, I'm I'm not going to say the quote because I'm going to butcher it, but there's a quote, I believe, something um, about, you know, the light kind of shines, you know, brings out the, really cleans out the darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do believe that there is a, maybe there is something to be said of that. But at the end of the day, if things like that fester over time, then they grow into larger issues that aren't, we can't tackle maybe as easily as a society. If we actually showcase and say, look, you know, 
if you call in these folks and say what you're doing is problematic and it's hurting these people for these reasons, then at least it provides an opportunity to for them to think about what they've done and how that they can move forward and perhaps with some sort of reparative in some reparative way. So then how did it make you feel when you heard that this is really almost being pitted as like, you know, libraries versus the Pride Society? Uh, I don't it I mean I it, it saddened me, in all honesty, because, you know, I've always loved the library. Um, it's, it is a place of knowledge, and it's a great place. At the same time, I think that, you know, what the Pride Society is doing is, like I say, listening to our community members. And what they've told us is that the, that event uh, didn't make them feel safe. And so... We had a duty at that point to really look at um, our own scoring system that every entry goes through and really think about what what does that mean for their entry. And it, it, it reduced them below the threshold. Um, and so we, we weren't, you know, unless we were to make an exception, we weren't really in a place to allow them to remain. Did it, um, did it have that impact on you as well? Like... Even if you don't go to that event, even if you don't live near that event, uh, it still makes you feel unsafe. It, it really does. I, um, I, I'll be, I'll be quite completely honest. I don't feel safe going to the library right now. Really? I, yeah, I don't. And why? Why do you think that is? Why? Because, uh, at the end of the day, the policies need to be in place and they need to be enforced. Uh, and I don't think that. Either of those happened. I don't think that they had a sufficient system to really prevent um, an event that had some very transphobic things said, uh, prevent that from taking place. And so I feel that if, if that lack of action or actual allyship in action uh, was demonstrated, then how, what, how am I supposed to feel if, if I go in to – how am, I, how am I as a community member going to know if I go in to pick up a book that I'm going to have a safe interaction? I know that you know that the folks there have really done a lot of work over the last few years to really build up their policies mm-hmm. in a lot of substantive ways, but you know it, it all fails. You know it's it's a it's a house of cards, and if you pull that one card off, the whole thing tumbles down. So you're saying if you went to the library today and someone said something to you uh, that was transphobic or someone, you know, uh, said that to you, you feel that nobody would come to your defense? Um, I think that I'm not saying that because I know we have a lot of incredible workers at our libraries. Yeah. And uh, I don't I don't believe that. But I, I do feel that it the the overall system, I, I now have a bit of a an unease in my stomach when I walk through those doors. I feel that the system, like this overall institution that I've come to trust and believe in over so many years of my life as someone who grew up here, I think that it now just, it, it it's it's tainted for me. It doesn't feel the same way as it once did. Do you think that might change for next year? I, I really hope that the library does look at their policies and really does uh, talk to LGBTQAI2S plus communities and listen and use the you know 
use those discussions to actually inform policy changes and then enforce those policies. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's Catherine Jenkins, Vancouver Pride Society board member, talking more about uh, the whole situation that unfolded this week.